This episode is sponsored by Bevy. Bevy is a smart water cooler that offers still, sparkling, and flavored water on demand. With Bevy, your office could pay half the cost of what it costs to stock bottle water and reduce its carbon footprint by saving thousands of bottles per year. To learn more about Bevy and get a custom quote, visit bevy.co slash offline. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric, a recognized global leader in sustainability. With the SEC's climate disclosure rule, now is the time for businesses to get their data and strategy in order. To get started, visit se.com slash climate risk. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, what the Silicon Valley bank meltdown can tell us about startup funding, climate literacy training for every budget, EV tax credits hit speed bumps, and can progressives reclaim woke from the conservative right? We're waking up this week on 350. It's April 14th, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Always glad to have you with us. And joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, doing her spring thing, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. If I was really doing my spring thing, I would be out in my yard doing some perennial maintenance, but I'm doing my spring thing internally, I guess, inside my office, looking outside at the beautiful yard and my flowers. Well, as soon as we're finished uh, recording this week's podcast, maybe you can be out there with the perennials. That will be my Um, evening task. That will be my evening task, yes. We're getting this amazing weather here in the Bay Area. It's almost summer-like, which is to say it's foggy in the morning and sunny in the afternoon and then cool at night. It's sort of what we call summer. Uh, So I think that our our perennials are doing quite well. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, no, spring is my favorite season. I love watching flowers and other things poke their way out of the ground to say hello to the world. Let's poke our heads out of the ground and say hello to the Week in Review. With that lightheaded introduction, let's dig into something that's kind of deep. It uh, has to do with the recent meltdown last month of Silicon Valley Bank. And and what we've learned about that, and this is something that you wrote, Heather, about um, finance for startups. And, and I would dare to say this has much to do with climate tech startups. Um, what are we learning about startups from from the from the outcome of this bank collapse. So what we're learning about startups is that many of them probably didn't have the right financial and treasury policies in place to um, avoid being at least panicked, which which many of them were. Most of them escaped, um, as we know. I think many many startups escaped the worst of the thing of the damage that could have occurred with losing their funds and so forth. But they certainly were. Um, uh, did in, severely inconvenienced for at least a week. Um, some of them couldn't make payroll. 
uh, there was definitely emergency board meetings. I've talked to a number of folks that basically stood in lines outside um, other banks for for day, not not just Silicon Valley Bank, you know, when the run was happening, but to, you know, just to open accounts elsewhere so that they could actually transfer their funds because they didn't have they didn't have existing bank accounts elsewhere. So I just I've spent um, the last few weeks speaking with startup founders because I'm do I always do interviews. I talk to the lots of folks in the climate tech world just to get a sense of, you know, what this wake up call meant for them. And, you know, some just interesting strategies. Um, most of them have adjusted how they handle their sweep accounts, which um, for those who aren't, you know, so focused in on financing, uh, it's it's a way of basically taking uh, your money out of a out of a bank account and moving it to places where it can make you a little bit more money. So sweeping it out of a deposit account into into uh, money market funds or other investments that make more money for your with your money. Um, the the thing that happened with Silicon Valley Bank is that um, and you know usually usually people have mechanisms in place to 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 look at a threshold. So usually the two hundred fifty thousand insured level of the FDIC, um, and now people are doing that much more methodically. Some of them actually are not doing it in an automated way at all. They've taken back control. Others have hired CFOs already. They've gone out and said, you know, what? we need someone here who's going to handle our our um, finances, our treasury, and so forth. So it just, um, you know, I was I was relieved to find that many of them had recovered very well, but they definitely um, are using this. You know, you never want to waste a good crisis, and um, that's what's going on. So I want to come back in a minute to this whole notion of sweeps and uh, something that our colleague Nick, Nico McCrossin wrote about called impact cash deposits. But before that, sticking with your piece, Heather, what is all this doing to to fundraising and as as startups you know look out go out as they do and everyone does to raise cash, either equity or debt cash, uh, in in the markets? Yeah, great question. Thank you for asking. It is definitely slowing things down. So the the other thing that people are learning is that they're going to need to spend more time fundraising. That it, the window could be three to six months. There's going to be a lot uh, longer, three to six months longer than it has been taking. So like a year potentially, um, which means founders or CEOs need to get out in the market earlier. They need to also do their due diligence, and they have to have these um, these financial messages and, and policies in place. So. There are other mechanisms coming out. So as an, one example, um, if you can't raise a Series A, you might go out and get more seed fundings, which tends to be smaller amounts. You might have So you might have to go work with more investors than in the past. Um, there's also some um, mechanisms that are coming in place. One, comp- one organization is called Enduring Planet, and they are financing receivables. So for the, the startups, the early stage startups that actually have a revenue flow, they're, they're able to give some alternative financing based on, you know, basically receivable. So there are other services coming out to uh, to serve this community. I think we're going to see a lot of innovation here um, in, the, in the weeks to come. Yeah. Well, let's turn to this piece that uh, Nico McCrossin wrote uh, called How Startups Might Use Impact Cash. You know, this is a new term for me, impact cash, although I, I realize that I have some connection to it. But the, this is a impact cash or, or kind of the, the sort of sweeps uh, that you're talking about. But instead of being managed by a network of big banks, uh, impact cash deposits use uh, credit unions, uh, what's called CDFIs, community, community development financial institutions, and low income designated financial institutions. These are banking terms um, that that 
put idle cash to work serving local communities and um and uh, they still, I, I think, are subject to the FDIC uh, insurance uh, limits, but it does spread the cash around and, and actually have it do some yeah. good. And, and I'll give a quick plug to to uh, well, two companies, one of which I'm very familiar with that Nico mentioned in this one is called Impact's Depo- Impact Deposits Corp, uh, which uh, helps uh, companies uh, distribute this money through banks. And the other was one that I know called C-Note, which is run, and I will own this uh, by a relative of mine, Catherine Berman, a distant cousin, but a good friend, um, which takes idle cash from companies like MasterCard and, and Apple and some others and puts it to use, so lending it through CDFIs to uh, uh, low-income uh, and uh, women and minority-owned enterprises. So I think this is a really interesting uh, area that uh, Nico has talked about. Uh, yeah, I love this uh, This this as well, because it's basically like, okay, so startup founder, if you're going to use your cash or something and you're, you care about the climate and you're trying to do good, good ESG wise, why not use those investments um, in that kind of way? So sweep it, sweep your accounts and then get the money going into um, these other types of financial um, instruments that exist. I, I do know, and this is another thing I didn't mention a moment ago, but the, the startups I, that I spoke with, you know, many of them were in the bank in the in the evaluation of their new banking partners because most of them were like they were still using SVB by the way, um, Silicon Valley Bank, but many of them were adding at least one maybe two ad- additional bank accounts and one was you know one was usually like hey we're gonna get someone big, like a big one that can help us um, and and maybe is more you know remember the too big to fail you know maybe there's you know more security in that. But then the other uh, place that people were looking were um, banks that were really focused on, um, you know, that had some kind of climate bent to them, that they they had were fossil free, uh, fossil fuel free, or that had um, a way of using their cash that was was um, uh, you know focused on, aligned with climate goals themselves. So yeah, yeah. Well, mm-hmm. a lot of jargon here, CDFIs, LID, SVB, and that sort of brings up another story here I want to talk about, which is climate literacy. And this comes, uh, let's see, two stories that we ran this week from our friend Trish Kenlin, who uh, is the founder of something called Sustainable Career Pathways. And just have to give a shout out to Trish for uh, r- creating stories that are among the the most trafficked stories on our website that go Every even some of these things that 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 ran a year or even two years ago are always in the top ten or twenty or thirty stories that 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 people click on every week. This week she has two stories. One is called climate literacy training for every budget, and the other is called ten resources for improving corporate climate literacy. So uh, this is really interesting and important stuff. And is you know there's that sort of trite. You know, it's a cliche now that every job is a climate job, um, sort of, but not really, but sort of, and increasingly. Uh, so if it, if that's true, we need to understand uh, what we're talking about here and, and what some of these, not just the terms mean, but how they relate to, to uh, the business of profits and productivity. Yeah. I actually want to give a shout out to Nishant Son, who's an MBA student at the University of Pittsburgh, who helped 
Trish with the research for this. But yeah, the intention of the, the, the this two part, and by the way, it's two parts partly because it was so long. <laughs> I figured, but there was a, there was a logical break to them. So the first part, uh, you know, just to give you further clarity is climate literacy for individuals. So you as an individual, if you're, if you're really trying to um, beef up your knowledge. And by the way, I, when I say you, I'm not talking about the people in the sustainability profession. I'm talking about how this profession can get others in their organization um, up to speed and and really help teach team members, colleagues across their companies about the the, the terms and the and the nuances and everything that's associated with this. Um, so that's the intention with these particular courses is to help broaden the knowledge across the company. First part's really focused on individuals, and the second is meant for resources um, that a company could use to really scale this across their organization with their own training programs and um, really sort of build them into um, a curriculum that's maybe part of a more formal a formal offering. So yeah, lots of great resources. Um, she's also, I want to say, there's links in both stories that lead to Trisha's LinkedIn account because she is collecting names for things that she missed. She's She's fully... Fully aware, and and as 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 with anyone who does a list, you always know that you're probably going to miss someone, and um, so she's she's collecting ideas for future stories and and so forth. So, well, there's a lot of ones I wasn't familiar with. I mean, I I know about the UN Global Compact, but I did not know that they had an academy. Uh, I'd never heard of Terra.do, which is a climate learning thing. I do know about Climate School from Kite Insights and so on. And Thesis as a consultancy, they apparently have some carbon literacy training. So really great uh, things here that I think will will help people uh, get on the road to uh, climate jobs. But that's another segue to on the road talking about our last story uh, for, for the moment is uh, EV tax credits. This comes from Vartan Bedalian, our transportation analyst and uh, Green Biz Transport Network lead. He leads uh, the peer network that we have of transportation uh, professionals inside companies. And wow, uh, this whole thing about which EVs are eligible for tax credits um, is really, really confusing. Um, I don't even know where to start. Why don't you take this one? Yeah, so it's confusing because what... um one of the things that that the administration, the Biden administration, is trying to do is um, encourage EV manufacturing in the United States, and all and by that um, that means all the components. And the challenge is that many of the minerals and the battery components that are part of EVs are not in the U.S. right now. Um, so how do you how do you figure out then um, if a Ford or uh, Ford vehicle or a Tesla vehicle are eligible for the credits. Well, you know where are they being manufactured? So the 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 stuff that came out this week was trying to clarify that. It's still pretty confusing though. It's um, uh, you know, and I'll give you a specific example. Um, uh, both actually both Ford and Tesla, they're both partnering with a company called Contemporary Amperex Technology. Now. That's a Chinese company. It's the largest battery maker in the world. They're licensing their the technology from that company in order to build North American battery manufacturing plants. So they're taking technology approaches and probably technology from a Chinese company. Um, but there is this whole foreign entity of concern clause in the um, EV tax credits that could be a flag. So um, one of the reasons that Vartan 
kind of copped to this whole thing. Obviously, he's a transportation um, expert within our organization, but he saw um, our favorite senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, speak about this. And um, and Manchin's kind of between a rock and the hard place because he, you know, on one hand, he wants these manufacturing. And many of the many of the plants that have been announced have been in the south, southeast, places like Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, and this could be great jobs for people that have been displaced from fossil fuels industries. But um, this whole concern over where, you know, onshoring is is could be a sticking point. So, yeah, pretty convoluted. I don't think it's going to get less confusing anytime soon, but that's what's going on. Listeners, we're going to depart a little bit from our usual feature format this week and uh, go back to a story that my colleague Joel McCower wrote this week. Why can't we take back woke? Um, I want to is get us into this by just saying that this is uh, something that I've been um, increasingly concerned with in, in, in the recent weeks. How do we take back the dialogue um, of of positive things that happen from the climate movement and all the, re- the related things around it, the inclusive economy. Um, right now we're on the defensive and I I loved this, when I got this piece landed in my inbox to edit, I was very happy to see it. Um, Joel, so wh- what inspired, why can't we take back woke? Yeah, thanks. This is something that's been on my mind for a while. And, and, and I'll be honest, this is a, I actually thought of this, uh, some number of years ago when what the topic was not woke it was just liberal when liberal became a weaponized term it's supposed you know just that's you know the liberal left and it became during one of the campaigns and i forget which one and it's like well okay but if 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 taking care of people and 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 the planet is is liberal sure okay i guess i'm liberal i just thought we 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 should own that and and then as woke became i think even more of a of a weaponized word um, it just seemed that, uh, you know, the conservative right did a really good job of of taking this word and that that, you know, I don't I don't particularly love the word itself, but uh, they succeeded in using it to undermine the ideals that most of us are working for, at least the listeners of this of this podcast, I'm guessing, in terms of sustainability the environmental, social, equitable, sustainable topics that that we talk about and and live by and and in many cases work for. So, but this is more complicated. Uh, This is not just another word like liberal. This is one that originated in the black community. And I I became keenly aware that that uh, as a white guy that woke isn't necessarily mine or, or ours as uh, as among my white people white friends and colleagues and and compatriots to take back um this has deep roots going back to the 1930s uh and and, and in the black community and so and yet this word has become so uh so much part of the culture that the question is you know, has it fallen into such common usage that its original meaning has taken a backseat to the original, uh, to its origin in the black community? Um, so 
This is actually the, what we ran this week was the second draft of the piece. Um, there was a first draft and, um, uh, and it was substantially similar, but it was, there, was, there were enough differences. But after I wrote it, uh, I ran it by a colleague of ours, Brian Lewis, who is the, uh, he runs the Emerging Leaders Program at, at greenbiz.org, which is uh, our company's nonprofit spinoff. Greenbiz, uh, the Emerging Leaders Program supports and advances professionals of color in the sustainability field. Um, and uh, Brian is a, a longtime community organizer and activist and uh, nonprofit uh, head and, and uh, just thought that he would have a perspective on this. And he did. And I'll play a clip of a conversation that Brian and I had about this uh, recently uh, after the piece was published. Uh, and you'll hear what he had to say about it. Um, but I, I really think this was just an interesting conversation and such a, a learning opportunity for me and hopefully for, for many of you. Uh, so, yeah, I uh, just want to run the clip and, uh, and leave it at that. Uh, so here's my conversation with Brian Lewis. So, Brian, first of all, thank you for giving me the feedback you did on the first draft of this piece. Um, and I was a little bit taken aback. I had to pick myself off the floor from your, from your initial comment. But then I realized, yeah, you're right. That's kind of why I wanted you to read it. You, you said that this was one of the whitest things you'd ever read. Uh, can you explain what you meant by that? Well, yeah, when you're talking about woke and you're talking about, you know, taking back a word that, you know, you didn't really have a hand in creating and you don't really own and, you know, the question is, who owns the word? And we'll get to that in a bit. But, you know, to a, a, a Black reader or Black listener, you know, you, your eyes start to roll a little bit because, you know, white people have a history of, you know, taking back things that they may never have owned in the first place. And so, you know, I, I thought that it was uh, important to share that because, you know, when we're talking about the conversation of woke, as a black reader or a black listener or just a black person, you're kind of sitting in the middle of this conversation. You're you're hearing one side use work woke as a pejorative or as a, a something that's galvanizing their base. And then now we have this conversation of taking it back. You kind of are sitting in the middle, like, okay, well, what about the original meaning? What about the meaning to the black community? Um, and so I think that's just important to call out. Yeah. So, so what does woke mean in the black community these days? Is it still its original definition or is it even used? To be quite honest, we don't really use the word much anymore uh, outside of, I guess what I'll say is it's almost become a caricature of itself. Um, you know, woke had a certain meaning to the black community in terms of, you know, we use the word stay woke or use the phrase stay woke. And that refers to the fact that it's important for us to keep our eyes open to the ways in which systems of oppression and, and injustice have rooted themselves in uh, the ways in which we're treated in, in society. Uh, and it had a very specific meaning to us. And now as that word has kind of been used and misused and taken and claimed and reclaimed, you know, I, I think that um, we don't really use the word seriously outside of maybe, you know, speaking about it in a facetious or joking manner. Um, so it doesn't really hold the same weight that it held because of how it's been used and uh, maybe even abused over the past few years. So that begs the question, is woke even worth taking back? I'm not sure that that's for me to decide. 
Um, but I do have a perspective on that. I think that, you know, in the way that we've seen woke uh, become almost a lightning rod or really, I might say almost a dog whistle for the uh, Republican or conservative movement uh, that's used the word to maybe describe an identity or describe people that um, are uh, in opposition to what it is that they believe. Uh, I think it's important for us to maybe not necessarily reclaim the word um, as if to use the word in our own definition and use it in the same way that they're using it, but the opposite. Um, I think it's important to just be comfortable with being woke. And that really speaks to what I feel that you were sharing in the article, which was, yeah, maybe it's time to reclaim the word, but really I think the 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 calling card is, yeah, if if woke means that we're in in favor of progressive ideals, if woke means that we are standing on what's equitable and just, uh, we're standing on what's sustainable and what's going to benefit us not just now but in the future, then maybe it's not necessarily we take that word back, but it's we stop giving that word so much power over us and stop allowing it to move us in the ways that uh, I think is the intent of uh, conservative media. Brian, in your work uh, leading the Emerging Leaders Program, you're, you're in touch with uh, regularly with a lot of young, 20-something mostly, uh, uh, young sustainability professionals of color. Uh, I'm wondering how they respond to this this whole you know, woke or not woke, back, take it back, don't take it back. Uh, do you get any sense that the the young up and coming professionals um, are are moved by this conversation at all? Yeah, I think that uh, younger generations are moved by this conversation as well. I think we're seeing the same things that uh, you all are seeing uh, in uh, conservative media and just media in general uh, and the conversations that we're having around uh, the social injustices that uh, the progressive movement is trying to address. Um, and I think there is maybe a little bit of a, and I'll speak from the young Black perspective, um, there's maybe a little bit of a pulling away from using the word or getting involved in the conversation around woke, um, because I think there's a recognition of what it is they're really referring to. So we don't necessarily have to use the same language that is being used or take it in the same way because we understand what's being uh what what's being discussed when we're talking when people are talking about woke. Uh and if it's being used in a way that is not in alignment with our own identities or the things that we're actually seeing or feeling, um I think it's best and I think a lot of young people, especially young black people, really just to disassociate from it. Yeah, well, thanks for having this conversation with me, not just today for this podcast, but uh, for this article and, and ongoing as as you lead this program within greenbiz.org uh, to help bring young professionals into the conversation and into the profession. Um, I think, you know, that we're going to find a way through this conversation around wokeness and maybe it's, we just don't even, you know, for it, Sort of the first rule of woke is don't talk about woke anymore. Uh, but um, uh, I really appreciate your contribution to this and for 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 having all of our backs as we look uh, try to navigate this space. Brian Lewis, thanks so much. Thanks, Joel.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. We got a bunch of them and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you can sign up. Our address is 350 at greenbiz.com. We always welcome your comments, questions, and tips. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. This episode is sponsored by Bevy. Bevy Smart Water Coolers offer 15 natural flavors and enhancements that you can mix and match, keeping you hydrated without compromise. And did we mention they've replaced over 300 million bottles and cans to date? To learn more about Bevy and get a custom quote, visit bevy.co slash greenbiz. And this episode is also sponsored by Schneider Electric, a recognized global leader in sustainability. With the SEC's climate disclosure rule, now is the time for businesses to get their data and strategy in order. To get started, visit se.com slash climate risk.